0: Lovecraft kind of talks about curiosity versus horror, like we're capable of doing versus like kind of what
1: we should be doing. As soon as you show the monster, then curiosity dissolves. There's nothing to be curious about anymore. And yeah, some of the momentum, it totally evaporates. He just sees like this great sea of horror beyond that
2: (laughs) is just too terrible to describe. So he kind of leaves it to your imagination. Yes. Because there are certain... There's like a certain level of horror that he can't incite with words. So he just kind of, by not saying it, yeah, just
1: kind of leaves it to the reader. Hello. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Melissa and Ben about the conclusion of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you some writing prompts directly from H.P. Lovecraft himself. To begin, another quote from H.P. Lovecraft, who once wrote, I couldn't live a week without a private library. Indeed, I'd part with all my furniture and squat and sleep on the floor before I'd let go of the 1,500 or so books I possess. I chose this quote to kind of annoyingly repeat a theme or motif that I've insisted on since the beginning of this course, and that is that reading and reading a lot is the only way to learn how to become a great writer maybe not the only way, certainly the best, certainly on the list of the 10 best ways to become a great writer, reading a lot is, I would say, numbers one through nine. And you can find many, many examples of the writers that you love echoing the exact same sentiments. So the more you read, the better your writing will get. Don't ever feel like these are separate things. When you're reading, you are learning how to become a writer. Now, let's dive right into that discussion about the end of At the Mountains of Madness with me and Melissa and Ben. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are hey. you guys?
2: Doing good. So,
1: very good. I'm excited for this chat. You've heard enough of these to know how they go. I don't think that you'll be surprised really by anything here. I mostly just want to hear your reactions to the book. And we'll emphasize in our discussion the second half, the, the conclusion of the book. But if there's anything in the in the first half that you want to talk about, of course, we can refer to that too. It, it, that's not off limits by any means. I'm happy to take the conversation into whatever topic you want, ways in which uh, we can learn how to write by reading this book, things that he's particularly good at, and we can and, and can be a good model of. I think we could, if you want, talk about time scale. And in such a short book, he talks about a story that spans millions and millions of years. We could talk about how he does that effectively, why you would do that as an author. We could talk about narrative pacing, by which I mean that there's a story that's being told about the discovery of this ancient city but then there's another story that's being told about the, build, the building of the city and the collapse of the city. So how do you know as an author when to tell what story and how to, how and when to include backstory? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Talk about setting. A, we, we did talk about this in the first uh, Lovecraft podcast, but I think there's maybe a bit more to say about it. We could also talk about dialogue or the lack thereof. This book has virtually no dialogue, which is a bit weird. And maybe we want to talk about why, if that's good, if that's bad, if you liked it, if you didn't. One last thing that I thought maybe we could talk about is a term I'm stealing from filmmaking. I think it's called the reaction shot. You know this from movies where some event will happen and then the camera will cut to a person's face showing you their, his or her reaction. It's a kind of cue to the audience to how to respond and I think that uh, Lovecraft is doing this in this book too, where he doesn't really show us the horror so much as the reaction of the people to the horror. So we could talk about why you would do that. First, I do want to know in the whole book, beginning, middle, or end, what you liked the most, what you found the most appealing, what moments, what scenes, what paragraphs, you know, anything, your favorite bits.
0: One of my favorite things about this reading was the penguin payoff. Um, where, like, one of the first notes I wrote down was like, "Wow, he doesn't like penguins," and then I like <laughs> wrote it again, like, "Wow, he somehow hates penguins." I don't understand. The moment where you find out the role that the penguins played in the story, I was I felt really rewarded as a reader for paying attention. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. Like, I'm super glad that, you know how you're supposed to use the gun that you mentioned at the beginning of the story? He definitely used the gun. And I felt so satisfied as a reader. And it was amazing. It was one of my favorite moments.
1: Tell people what you're, so I'm going to ask you a couple follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. What is this gun uh, metaphor that you're using? I mean, I know, I think I know what you're you're referring to, but tell the people Mm -hmm. listening what you mean.
0: So in writing um, it's told that if you mention a gun, that it eventually it needs to be shot. Or, yeah. like, there's a gun that's hanging on the guy's wall. Why would you mention it unless you're going to shoot it? Yeah. So, like, last episode you talked about, like, by page 8, we know that he something is wrong with the great grotesque penguins. Yeah. And, like, by 73, <laughs> he still feels that way about the penguins.
1: Yeah. And
0: then, like, by... I think it's around 80 that the great moment comes where you're like oh these penguins are important and it really made me hone in and I felt like satisfied and whole as a reader and I was like Lovecraft you are amazing because I could see the twist coming but like he suddenly had this other twist in it and I was like yes this is amazing good job yeah
1: there's this whole race of I mean just to fill people in I mean people listening to this may or may not I encourage students to listen to this kind of whenever they want to while they're reading maybe before maybe after but yeah there's this whole race in addition to these weird weird alien creatures there's this whole race of giant albino penguins that they're not necessarily villainous they don't they're not scary per se but they're like touchstones for i don't know what how would you describe their significance
0: it was kind of interesting so you find the penguins and they're in the cave and you find out that they're used as food yeah <laughs> um for the creatures but the way he was describing them as how they've been in the tunnel for so long that they were they like they have no they were, eyes yeah and they're like just like thin like useless slots
2: yeah
0: i, I don't know This could be a metaphor for something, but um, I've been trying to just like enjoy literature more instead of just like debriefing everything. But it was a huge payoff because you understand why he hates penguins. (laughs) Like in the whole story, we kind of talk about how he's very, very vague on certain details. Um, And how like you kind of have to fill in the blank sometimes. But in other times, he's like really specific. And suddenly you can see... He was like kind of taking out what he wasn't talking about onto the penguins, the system and role that they play in these monsters in this city. And I was like, yes, I feel fulfilled. It was amazing. That's
1: great. No, that's great. And I'm totally with you about not having to interpret everything and just to enjoy things. And yeah, I I don't really care to find out or think about whether or not the penguins are a metaphor for this or that. They're weird, grotesque, giant, blind, albino penguins, which is 10 times more interesting than any symbol that they could be. But yeah, so there's this wonderful cr- trail of crumbs, this trail of foreshadowing, I guess. I love this precept of the gun that you've uh, brought to this conversation. Anyone listening who's taking notes about how to become a great writer. Plant these little, I don't want to call them clues because that that implies that great writers that implies that great writing has to be decoded, do you know what I mean? Which no, that's not it, but it does give the story a wonderful sense of cohesion and unity where it's like, "Oh, this comes full circle and gives a symmetry to the story. And all of this was kind of building up. None of this was arbitrary. That's the sense that it gives you. None of this was arbitrary. It was all of one piece. So that's a really great and important lesson that we can learn as a writer. Whatever little details that you're using, try to make them deliberate and echo later on in the story. Yeah, Ben, what would you say? Favorite bits, favorite aspects, favorite moments? Uh, just, Just before
2: that, I was going to say about what you were saying, I have a a friend who's a writer and she's kind of been a mentor to me and she would say plant seeds hmm. throughout the story, plant these seeds and then, you know, at the end they all come to fruition and you see it. Yeah. And I just kind of liked the climax in a way. I think it's done really, it's it's a lot different from most climaxes because for it, it's a hundred page story and for 90 pages, we don't see any of the creatures. Yeah. You know, and I think it's interesting how he frames it. Like, we know all along what's going to happen in a way. Yeah. And we we know that they're they're going to come across something horrific. And then at the very end, he shows up and it's not them. It's the The Shogoths. Yeah, that's right. And all of a sudden, they feel a lot of sympathy for the old ones. Like, they've discovered their whole culture and you're expecting them to come with their tentacles and stuff and just rip them apart. <laughs> but he ends up actually really respecting them. And he's more worried about
1: the monsters they've created. It It is. So this is another kind of twist inside the twist. This is a great point, Ben. It's not, yeah, we, okay, The old the, the old ones are scary and gross and dangerous. And they did kill all those people in the camp, you know. And partly dissected a dog and a a human. So they're dangerous. But the twist, yeah, maybe twist is slightly an overstatement, but he takes the story further. I mean, if I was writing the story, I would have been sufficiently impressed. I I, I couldn't have because I'm not that great a writer and my imagination isn't that wild. But if I had stumbled somehow into imagining the old ones as a thing and into this narrative... I would have been sufficiently impressed by that to say, this is this is a great story. This is good enough. But no, it's not good enough for Lovecraft. He, t- he constantly pushes himself one step further. So it's not just that there's this ancient city and these old ones have come alive and are starting to kill people. No, there are these other kind of slave beings that the old ones created long ago. And these other slave beings kind of went, their evolution went unchecked and became super powerful. And they are, weird gelatinous eyeball gooey jelly monstrous things it sounds so stupid when you when you talk about it i've tried to convince my wife to get into lovecraft i'm like no listen i know it sounds dumb but just trust me it, it's it's really worth reading and then they and then like one of those shoggoths attacks one of those resurrected old ones and you're right i mean it's not as if the narrator feels total sympathy with the old ones but they're just as vulnerable as the humans are. Again, I don't want to get too interpretive or too teachery, but there's this weird kind of double layer of the old ones committed the mistake that the narrator is worried that the human race will now commit. The old ones kind of pushed their science too far and created this Frankenstein monster that eventually rose up and destroyed them. And the narrator is saying, no, other teams don't go to Antarctica. Some things are better left unearthed, you know, just leave it alone. So th- the book presents this wonderful view of history as something cyclical, you know, and mistakes that old races committed, new races will inevitably commit. Yeah. Why, why is a writer, uh, why would you choose to keep the villain or the monster off stage for virtually most of the book, virtually all of the book? What, what is the payoff or reasoning behind that?
0: Well, connected to, I'm really glad that you brought up the point about how they had created their own monsters and everything like that. Um, Because something I noticed throughout the book was how on page 75, it's like, curiosity having long ago got the better of horror. (laughs) And you kind of see how these elder ones like their curiosity had created a monster essentially. And it's awesome how in this book, they're constantly doing things for curiosity that as someone who's not super curiosityly minded in yeah. the scientific field, I would have gotten out a long time ago. And <laughs> right. I've been like, it's not worth it. Like I'm out. The horror would have been enough for me, but I felt like in this story, Lovecraft kind of talks about curiosity versus horror. Like what we're capable of doing versus kind of what we should be doing, um, which I thought was super interesting. And also, I think why he doesn't mention the monsters until later is the same thing that he's talking about with the curiosity, where it's like, yeah, I'm safe here, but like I'm going to keep reading because I'm curious about this horror and what's happening. And I think there's different types of horror, and this is kind of like the suspense horror of like, the clowns hiding in the yeah. it, like the dungeon or the sewers and then like yeah. he pops out at you. I feel like it's kind of that kind of horror and playing with the curiosity versus horror and how far you're willing to go. And then Lovecraft kind of talks about what happens when you go too far. And I thought that was really interesting.
1: I love that. So, so Lovecraft knows enough about human psychology to trust the fact that curiosity will keep readers reading more than a full, in-the-light encounter of the horror. Yeah, because as soon as you show the monster, then curiosity dissolves. There's nothing to be curious about anymore. And yeah, some of the momentum, it totally evaporates. So you want to sustain that momentum as long as you possibly can. Ben, any thoughts about this? I was just thinking that technically we never even see them. When he finds the old ones, they're already dead. Yeah, that's right. And it's just the Shoga. We see a we see a old one that a shogath has bitten the head off of, and of course we see like the slowly thawing old ones. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but you're right. We never see one like in full fledged attack mode, which I think is good. I mean, imagine the story in which they turn a quarter and suddenly are rushed by one. I don't know. If you share my sense that that would be worse, why would that be worse?
2: So in relation to that, I'm kind of thinking about. Danforth like how he has that vision at the end of some incomprehensible evil and I think like part of this story is like he tells about the more basic things but he just sees like this great sea of horror beyond that (laughs) is just too terrible to describe so he kind of leaves it to your imagination yes because there are certain there's like a certain level of horror that he can't incite with words so he just kind of by not saying it, yeah, it just kind of leaves it to the reader.
0: books t- don't have ratings, and so, like, as me, someone who doesn't ever read horror or watch it ever, this was enough that I was like <laughs> but like someone who does la- like watch a lot of horror and stuff, they'd be able to like interpret more, and so it was super interesting to me how he let you interpret that if that makes sense, and so like someone less experienced maybe would like pull up a blank, but someone who's deeply okay into it might be able to have a better ID, which is super fun.
1: So it could, could be like choose your own level of, of nightmare.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the notes I wrote down before I fully understood what Dan Fort was going through, I wrote that like curiosity is going to kill him and it kind of like does destroy him a little bit, which is kind of interesting to see that once you do see the whole picture, how it can kind of be too much. And so he does just give you just enough yeah. that you're good.
1: Yeah. There's this wonderful paragraph on at the very end. In my edition, it's page 101, but it's, it's you know, like the third, second, third paragraph to the end of the book. Um, so they're now in the present, they're back, and they're, the narrator is talking about how Danforth is doing these days. He has on rare occasions whispered, disjointed and irresponsible things about, quote, the black pit, the carven rim, the proto shogoths the windowless solids with five dimensions, the nameless cylinder, the elder pharaohs, yog sothoth the primal white jelly, the color out of space, the wings, the eyes in the darkness, the moon ladder, the original, the eternal, the undying, and other bizarre conceptions. But we're told that Danforth, you know, will never be the same, right? I think you're both, both of you are absolutely right to say that there's something more scary about this. You know, you've all seen movies. I mean, maybe not, Melissa, if you don't watch horror movies, but there are there are horror-esque movies where you suddenly see the monster and it's really disappointing. You know, I mean, maybe this movie will date me, but I remember seeing the movie Signs, this M. Night Shyamalan alien movie. And, you know, it's like a crop circle. They see crop circles and there's weird reports on the news of this sighting or that ufo you know they're hearing weird noises on the roof and stuff like this so it's a good movie for about an hour and a half and then suddenly you see an alien standing in the living room and you just think you know it's like oh dear it looks so dumb it looks so cheesy it looks so animated and fake and it's nothing as scary anymore and everything good about the movie suddenly you forget i feel like if they had turned the corner and there were like tentacles everywhere rushing at them i just would have felt oh dear this is stupid and what am i reading and what's pleasure about this is the tantalizing slow development and the psychological implications i think that's the scariest thing the cycle psych- danforth has never been the same we don't know what he saw we get a little silhouette we get scraps of it little bits of it but what we're most interested in is the effect it had on him
2: i haven't okay. really watched or read any horror either i mean i read frankenstein yeah but this book has a lot that, in
1: common with Frankenstein.
2: It, it does. It has a ton in common. Like that theme about like the ambition of man versus
1: curiosity. That's right. And the Arctic setting, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And actually, on a different, like, with the framing, because Frankenstein starts with this other character, and then it kind of comes back to the other character at the end. And this book kind of does the same. It's interesting where it starts in the future, and then at the end we come back to that again. So I was just wondering, actually, what you thought about that, like, do you think that that's still kind of a viable story structure to kind of frame it that way?
1: Totally. I think so. I mean, I think it, this came up in our last podcast where it's a good way in this particular story. It's a great way to start because we see, I don't want to compare this to a movie because some people might infer that, oh, movies are actually a superior art form or something. I'm not saying that they're not, but this is a class about how to write books, not movies. But we, we may have seen more movies, weirdly, than we've read books. So, you know, if, you, if an opening scene of a movie shows you the hero post-battle and what he or she has gone through, you know, this can be a psychological battle or a physical battle, we're immediately, we immediately need to know what they went through that made them look like that. So it's a great way to pique curiosity right at the start, to show the present day after the story is over what the hero is like uh another movie that probably not enough of you have seen that i could refer to this is this wonderful movie called amadeus have people seen this movie so good in 30 seconds it's this movie about mozart it's this biopic about mozart and the movie opens with this priest going to an insane asylum and uh one of the people in the insane asylum is this composer named salieri and he's very old and slightly bizarre act he acts slightly in kind of bizarre ways and he's been accused of the murder of Mozart. So because of the setting of the insane asylum and because Salieri is slightly weird and because he's been accused of this murder, we think, oh, I have to know this story. There's a story here. What happened? And then the movie jumps back and starts the story from the beginning. And then by the time the story's over, we're back in the insane asylum. So yeah, many, many books and movies and stories work this way for sure. I think it. there's nothing yeah, there's nothing dated or antique about that about that style or about that framing, about that technique. That That is a lasting mode, I think.
0: Also, a more modern example of this would be a quiet place, at least the first one, where there's nothing, 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 and then, like, you see the monster, but, like, the monster is kind of disappointing. But the build-up to where you know it's in the room and it's there and she's giving birth and it's this whole thing, that's the truly scary yeah. part. Also, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, at least the book, it doesn't it it's interesting because it doesn't give you that flashback. Instead it like starts from the present day and builds up. But I feel like that's a different type of story and it was more about the relationships. Yeah. Um while I feel like this book was more about the overarching theme of let's not go here. Yeah. It's more of a warning. And it's kind of interesting then how it lacks the description but it lacks the dialogue too. I was like didn't okay. even notice the lack of dialogue until like page 80. And then I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Why is there no dialogue? And okay. it was one of the notes I wrote down actually. I was like, we need to talk about this.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we totally will. I just want to underscore a couple more things because you said both of you have said wonderful things that deserve highlighting. Melissa, you say you don't watch horror movies, but you clearly do. A quiet place invasion of the body snatchers right these are classics of the genre now and they're good examples of this no I, I was I, I agree with you totally about the quiet place it's better that scene of her in the tub it's just her face you know or, or any any shot of anyone's face in that movie is so much better so much scarier so much more interesting than any shot of any monster you agree heads are nodding two or three witnesses. Another example of this, not to beat a dead horse, because we should talk about dialogue, but me and my wife are uh, re-watching Breaking Bad. And just last night, I was thinking about this principle, the principle of the reaction shot in preparation for this conversation. And just last night, we were watching an episode where, this won't spoil anything, I don't know if people watch the show anymore, but a woman is going to the hospital to see a man that she knows, and this man has been severely injured. And she walks into the hospital room, so you don't see the man in the hospital bed you see her opening the door and you see her face and it's, this is like in season four or five. So it's pretty late in the show, but it has to be one of my favorite shots of the whole show because the camera stays on her face for probably 90 seconds, which is a long time. I mean, count to 90, you know, that's a long time for the camera to stay on her face. And during these 90 seconds, her face, goes through three or four transmutations of horror. You know, first there's shock, then there's sadness, then there's a new kind of shock, then there's grief. It's like the most wonderful thing. And the imagination, this is what Lovecraft knows. Lovecraft knows that the imagination, the imagination is the most powerful machine in the universe. That's what Lovecraft knows. So for Danforth to never tell the narrator or us what he looks back out of the plane and sees is a stroke of genius, because if he described it to us, we'd think, well, that's stupid. But no, we're left to wonder. When I was watching that episode of Breaking Bad, I thought, what does he look like? How horribly mangled is this poor man? It's like, it could be this, it could be that. I'm inventing all of these horrors, you know? So Lovecraft lets lets the human mind work, be its own kind of worst enemy and torture itself in this wonderful way. Why is there no dialogue in this book? What a great question. Maybe there should be dialogue in this book. Should there be? Would it be a better book with dialogue, with more dialogue, thoughts about dialogue and its total absence?
2: I think it might have to do with the form of the book. Like it's written by a geologist. And at the beginning, he's just like reporting on his geologic expedition. Even as he gets in there, he's describing the walls. He's describing everything in a very technical way. And I don't know. I I don't really see it as a narrative so much as a, like a report, you know, it, it just feels very like a scientific writing.
1: That's very good. So there are justifiable reasons. There are, there are traits of the narrator and of the narrative itself that justify this. He doesn't really state this outright, but it's clearly some kind of like report that he's going to send to the leaders of this new expedition. So he's not at, you're right, Ben. He's not actually writing a novel. He's writing a report. Let me report on what happened. So, yeah, why would he suddenly start using novelistic techniques like scenes with dialogue? That's true. But does that mean that it's it makes for the best reading experience? You can tell them a little bit on the fence. There are, and maybe this this relates to this question I had of narrative pacing. So maybe I'll risk asking, and I still want Melissa to weigh in on this dialogue thing, but I'll I'll risk putting a second topic on the table that I think overlaps with dialogue and that is it is this question of narrative pacing. So we get the story of their arrival to Antarctica. We get these weird communiques from Lake. They fly over the mountain and find Lake's camp. They find the city, but then when they find the city, the narrative, that narrative kind of stops for many pages. And we get this other narrative. They read these sculptures and friezes on these walls of the city and the narrator starts to tell us the narrative of the city this is who these these creatures are this is what, where they came from they built the city it's, it takes a long time here are two competing questions is it good to have this long of a story with no dialogue would the story be better with dialogue even despite ben's very good point of it doesn't really match the mode or genre still i wonder That's one question. And the other question is, is it too much backstory? Did did either of you get to that part of like, oh, and then we read more tapestries and we learned these other facts about these creatures and think, okay, just get on with it already. As a writer, how can you determine when and how and where and how much backstory to include in your narrative?
0: Yeah. Even though it, it, like is written in the technical way. But like there's this famous missionary who goes to Africa, he like is greeted by the scientist and the guy goes like Doctor Livingstone I presume or like in Sherlock Holmes, there's what do you think about this, Watson? And I think it fitted to not have any dialogue until they were in the cave. And what caught my attention was how Dyer mentioned the fact that they were like whispering back and forth. Uh-huh. And I was like, wait, wait, you guys kind of weren't talking before? I Why did you say you were whispering and now not include it? That was when I was like, wait a second, there's been no dialogue this whole story. Okay. And I think if he hadn't mentioned the fact that they were talking, then yeah, I feel like I wouldn't have expected any dialogue. But he mentioned the fact that they were whispering. and Good. Then I was like, okay, you need to give me some dialogue here, yeah. like good one line or something. I did feel like there was a little bit too much backstory with the tapestries. Yes. Yeah. So much to the point I thought that he had just included a section of the book that they were talking about oh, you've included, like, three chapters of this book. But... You
1: mean the Necronomicon, mm-hmm. that book that they keep referring to? I see, yeah. And
0: so I was like, oh, we included chapters of this. <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh, wait, you got this all from the tapestries? Which seemed a little, uh, a lot to me. Yeah. But how much you give your audience, I kind of think it depends on, like, what kind of questions you want them to ask. He clearly... <laughs> planted the foot and gave them a whole backstory and your readers are like, okay, the creatures history is clear. There's no, there's like no room for questions here, but like in other aspects of the book, there's a ton of questions. Okay. And so I think if in order to like something you can use to be a great writer is to ask yourself what questions you want your readers to ask themselves. And I think Lovecraft was like, these are my creatures. And he actually, I Googled them like a lot. And he uses them in other stories, like yeah. they're, they're everywhere. Yeah. So I feel like for him, it was important to be clear, but in other parts to not be clear.
1: I love that. Um, and I love your example of Dr. Watson or Dr. Livingston. Yeah, it's like you want people, you want characters to talk to each other. I think we kind of sense this dialogue is somehow more captivating, it captivates our attention in a more vivid way. Uh, any thoughts about this? What, what about you, Ben? You, I know that you write fiction and I know that you read a lot of fiction. So when you're writing fiction, I just want to hear an anecdote. I, I just want you to report back on your own experience writing fiction. How do you know when to narrate something as a scene? By which I mean, oh, I'll put dialogue in and I'll show this happening in real time. I'll show this conversation in real time and I'll narrate this sequence of events in real time, as opposed to exposition which would be something like and then we talked for an hour about me losing my job and how horrible that was and decided that the best thing to do would be for me to place an ad in the paper you know what i mean so you can either do it that way or show the conversation the back and forth how do you know when to do which
2: so i kind of think it has to do with what kind of information you're trying to convey and who the characters are that you're dealing with because the thing is, these two characters, they're always next to each other, and they're not saying, "Look, it's another tapestry." Look, it's, it's <laughs> they okay, they see everything. So, and, and they kind of mentioned that, like, they have the same visions, the same thoughts, the same just a lot of stuff. And I I'm sure they are talking and they're deliberating about battery life and how to survive. And I, don't know, I think that it's important. In some cases, like when one character knows a lot, that it be expository as a dialogue. But I think I think that there is kind of a, a judgment call.
1: Great. It is a judgment call. I think that's, there's no rule. There's no, I wish I could tell people like, oh, when in, in this condition, always put it in a scene of dialogue, but in another condition, always do a kind of summary paragraph of exposition. It's a judgment call that will differ in every, in many different cases, you know? Ben, what you say is great, though, about dialogue might seem strange in a situation where these two characters, it's not as if one character knows something that another doesn't, and so they have to interact and exchange information. You're right. There's no information that these two characters have to exchange because they're both, they're not facing each other. They're both facing this city. So they're both looking at the same thing at the same time, finding out the same thing at the same time. Yeah, might you're right. They might be talking about battery life, but do we need a little chat about battery life? I don't know. Maybe we do for the sake of narrative pacing. But yeah, for the sake of continuing the plot, no, that would serve no purpose. I think that's a really wise insight. Any other thoughts about dialogue?
0: Um, Well, it mentioned that they were gone for like 16 hours, but the way that it reads, it felt like they were gone maybe like three hours. I think if you're trying to like tell a story, then you need to include scenes of dialogue. But he's clearly trying to give a warning and say like this and that. So I don't think it needs it as much. Yeah. Also, it's interesting how like similarly they felt about it in, let's see. On 76, it says that they were loath to be balked by anything short of certain disaster. So like, they felt the same amount, similar feelings and stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of, I mean, they both are in the Antarctic. They both went on this expedition. So they are pretty similar characters. But um, he definitely talks about the poor guy's nervous state a lot. Yeah. And I'm, it was kind of curious to me to be like, like are you any better than him um (laughs) that was kind of fun for me
1: he does at the very at the very end he's like danforth is flying the plane right and is too shaken and the narrator's like well amateur pilot though i am i i thought it would be safer for me to take control (laughs) of the plane so he takes control of the plane so he does seem to be able to hold his nerves better than danforth but then again danforth saw something some unnamed thing that he didn't so you know maybe if he had seen that same thing he also would have crumpled. it's hard to say lovecraft is not averse to dialogue if we read his other stories and you know if people if you too or if people listening like this i recommend you read more stories by him he has so many great stories full of dialogue you know so he i think he knows when to use it and when not i do kind of i think agree with you though melissa i don't love i don't love Um, complaining about great books and I would say for sure this is a great book you know he he managed to write something that people will keep reading more or less for as long as books exist Um, so who are we to come and pick at its flaws but yeah that whole section later in the second half about the history of this race think I don't know could you please condense that by 30% maybe Wouldn't it be an even better book? I think it's a great book, but wouldn't it be even better if that bit was condensed? I like it. And again, it's like an LSD trip without taking LSD. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, what a crazy out of this world, literally story. I can't believe it. And it's a good example of world building, which we maybe could and should talk about, like how to make this entire fantastical realm seem plausible in its array of details. But I do think it slows down the story.
2: Well, I was kinda gonna ask on that note.
1: Yeah. There are a
2: couple of books we've read, like The Old Man in the Sea and this book at the Mountains of Madness, where I feel like the whole plot in regard to like the main character could be written on a napkin, you know? Oh yeah. Two people they go to the Antarctic, they enter this ancient city, they find a monster, and then they leave as fast as they can. Yeah. So I was just kind of going to ask with a, with a plot that's that just like threadbare, if he had taken out the culture of the old ones, what would that do to the story? You know?
1: I mean, to be fair, I think you could summarize, I mean, even Lord of the Rings, which again, I keep saying has become a touchstone book for these chats, but you know, you could do the same with Lord of the Rings. There, there, there are, there are sentence or two level summaries of, most great books that will give readers a sense of like okay that's something I would like to read but as soon as you dive in it's like it's it's it is more nuanced than that I mean the old man in the sea he catches a couple fish first he catches the fish he has to reel it in he has to keep his strength the sharks come more sharks come he goes back you know not to mention the whole context of him going 84 days without a fish being called unlucky this book even has more nuances I think they go there they dig up these fossils, they separate, there's these weird communiques by telegraph, they go to the camp, weird dissections, weird burial mounds, you know? So inside of the two-sentence sec- two summary, there are there's a wonderful sequence of more moment-by-moment moment events, yeah? You ask what would that do to the story if you took out... I would never advocate, like if we were workshopping this book, which, again, I think we should... In, in every case, maintain humility and not assume that we have it within our power to make these books better necessarily. So to say, oh, we could fix this, I think is very misguided and wrongheaded. I don't want anyone to get that impression, but I, I would never advocate taking out this that huge, long backstory. So, and I think if you took all of it out, 100% of it out, it would be a good adventure story, but it would lack a sense of context and a sense of grounding and a sense of scope. It would lack a sense of scope. You know, that section gives the story a sense of eon-spanning significance. He's telling a story about the spans of time, the endless spans of time. So if you took out that whole long backstory, that would get lost, which would, which would be a big mistake. But if you trimmed it by, say, 30% and set it 30% quicker, I think you might get the best of both worlds, wouldn't you? You'd get this wonderful adventure story, this wonderful suspense thriller. You'd get that cosmic scope, and you wouldn't feel slowed down in the second half of the book. I don't know. That's just maybe my personal reaction. Melissa, do you have any thoughts about this?
0: Um, yeah. So I may be one of the few people in the whole world who hasn't read the Lord of the Rings. Um, oh but, no. Like, we yeah. should pick a different book. <laughs> well, like, well, I know, like, the napkin paper i know what happens in right. two lines yeah. but like what i'm missing is kind of like what we've been talking about like the david foster wallace size footnotes but no he like hadn't caught anything in 84 days or like no it's not just this like
1: yeah yeah, um, yeah.
0: there's an elf that's important like that's right. you miss the stuff that like makes you passionate about it and i liked your point about the endless span of time and even though like I was reading this book really late at night. It was a little bit painful. It was also really good because I think kind of what you've been talking about, how it allows the book to keep going into like the future. Um, also, I'll never think of Antarctica again yeah, <laughs> the right. same way, um, which I think that that backstory really allowed also, I loved it how he mentioned the Abominable Snowman. Yeah, that's I right. Was, I was like, yes, this is amazing. And it was really nice to, for him to include a creature that I didn't have to look up because like, he'd constantly be mentioning things, and I'd be like, let me fan Google this. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was really nice how he added that and allowed endless, timeless reference in our heads of kind of what we're dealing with, which I fully enjoyed. and. <laughs> It's yeah. <laughs> great.
1: Um, I love that David Foster Wallace point where you would never—I mean, you could never convince somebody to read the Lord of the Rings. No, let me let me rephrase that. The Lord of the Rings is better than the napkin summary would imply. I mean, the napkin summary sounds pretty interesting, but what's so great about that book is the David Foster Wallace texture—the page by page bringing to life of a world. So I think the same goes with maybe any great book, you know, any any book, no matter what kind of book, no matter how great the plot has to give the reader dazzling and pleasurable and believable page by page texture, if that makes sense. It can't just be a plot summary. No one wants to read plot summaries. Yeah, that's the difference between a plot summary and a novel. Um, a novel includes a plot summary is bones and a novel is flesh, skin, freckles, eyebrows, you know weirdly shaped earlobes you know we want character we want personality we want texture the abominable snowman thing too it's like it's a very sneaky way we can learn a lot from this i think because if we want to write a story in which if we want to write a story in which we're inventing our own beings our own weird beings why not baby step our readers into that weirdness by using weird things that they already know it was like the yeti it was like the loch ness monster this is just one more in that pantheon So you're not selling them this wholly new thing, which they might not buy, but it's like this other thing that they already know. I think that's a really good technique.
2: I'm kind of curious about, sorry. No, please. I was just going to say, I'm kind of curious about uh, Lovecraft's other books. You know, like Cthulhu is the one that we always hear about, but he just has this, like he has tons of stories that take place in the same universe as this book. Yes. And I wonder if... I wonder if like all of this exposition would move more quickly if we understood that, you know, if we knew about whatever the desert city of this and this and the ancient
1: jungles, just all those things. Um, As a person who has read most of Lovecraft multiple times, it's my inner nerd slash I guess outer nerd can't hide anymore. I can say maybe not really, maybe a tiny bit. It could be like shout outs, like Easter eggs that lovers of Marvel movies enjoy. Do you know? Like if you're really into them, you'll notice things and be able to savor them. But, you know, anyone watching more or less any Marvel movie for the first time can get 95% of why they're enjoyable. So, yeah, you might appreciate the ways in which these other characters appear in other stories. But I don't think... I don't think that your experience reading at the mountains of madness would be wildly different. I don't okay. think I would recommend, uh, yeah, the call of Cthulhu is a very good story and this is his longest. So the other ones are shorter. The whisper in the dark is very good. Shadow over in his Mouth is very good. The Dunwich Horror. You can Google like top 10 best Lovecraft stories and read them. Any other burning questions, comments, scenes, Things we can learn as writers from this book. What what should we cover?
0: I fully enjoyed how he went like, um, how he like called the mountains of madness one thing, but by the end of the book, how he fully starts calling them the mountain of madness. Yeah, and like the full build up to understanding why that was amazing. It also kind of rewarded me as a reader. I was like, yes. Because I wrote down phrases he would use to describe them. They weren't super flattering. Savage windstorm. Eon-long death. That's how he describes the mountain. Hideously convincing merits. He keeps going. Mm. Lurking horrors in the mountains. Half paralyzed with terror looking at them. (laughs) Blasphemous tunnel. That was a really funny one. That's a great one. Also at the end he talks about how we understand the quality of the cosmos fear to its ultimate death i mean (laughs) death and i was like oh okay and i felt like his his best like, like show instead of tell was best seen in how he goes about talking about the mountains of madness
1: yeah there's a wonderful bit I'll try to do this quickly. Page 28 in my edition. Nobody has to turn there. In the whole spectacle, there was a persistent, pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation, as if these stark nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream and complex gulfs of remote time, space, and ultra-dimensionality. I could not help feeling that they were evil things, mountains of madness whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss. That seething, half luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and eong eon long death of this untrodden and unfathomed Austral world. I mean he could have just said, I found them spooky, or they were weird, or I looked at the mountains and felt a tinge of strangeness, or the mountains looked creepy. No, no. He's like the Van Gogh of writing where the paint is super thick. Like he just adjective after adjective, very good at evoking mood. So my last comment will be, if you want to know how to evoke mood in a setting, if you're writing a book and you want to describe a place and whether that place be a creepy place or a bright and happy cheerful place, there's a way to describe that place that will evoke an entire mood, to associate a mood with a place. And if you want to learn how to do that, I couldn't recommend a better person than Lovecraft he's very good Ben last thoughts comments questions I really enjoyed the story
2: I enjoyed the twists that came with the old ones honestly I I enjoyed the exposition just because of how it affected the characters you see them like slowly drawn in their curiosity gets more and more a hold of them until finally they do see that they, they do get spooked and then they run you know
1: I'm really glad you said that. I'm really glad that that is how we're ending this conversation because you're absolutely right. This had not occurred to me. But the truth slowly dawns on them of who this civilization was and where it came from. So to, to, to shorten that might be a mistake because we need them to kind of experience it gradually. And we need them to let this, we need their suspense in this situation to slowly build. I think that's a very wise thing to say. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you. See you later.
1: Bye. So for today's writing prompt, I told you that we would be getting some prompts from H.P. Lovecraft himself. Like many authors, Lovecraft kept journals and diaries and writing notebooks in which he kept short little ideas that he would jot down that he hoped maybe one day could grow into full-fledged stories. I think a total of 221 little unwritten ideas exist. You can find these on the internet if you just Google H.P. Lovecraft, 221 unwritten story ideas. And they're like a sentence or two long for the most part. These are stories maybe he just didn't have time to get to, or maybe ideas that he abandoned. Some seem kind of silly. Some I think could be quite captivating. So I just thought I'd read a few of these to you. And invite you to try them out for yourself. So as I read these, keep in mind that this is Lovecraft's own writing. So some of these will be sentence fragments. Take them for what they're worth. Here's one. Enchanted garden where moon casts shadow of object or ghost invisible to the human eye. Here's another. Man transformed to island or mountain. Or. Blind fear of a certain woodland hollow where streams writhe among crooked roots and where on a buried altar temple sacrifices have occurred. Phosphorescence of dead trees. Ground bubbles. Here's one. Man lives near graveyard. How does he live? Eats no food. Or man observed in a public place with features or ring or jewel identified with those of a man long buried. And another, Thing from sea. In dark house, man finds doorknobs, etc., wet as from touch of something. He has been a sea captain, and once found a strange temple on a volcanically risen island. Castaways on island eat unknown vegetation and become strangely transformed. And lastly, change comes over the sun, shows objects in strange form, perhaps restoring landscape of the past. So if any of those sparked your imagination, take it and run with it and see where it goes. And to conclude, the poem of the day. Since we're still in October, since we're still reading a creepy novel, and since Edgar Allan Poe was one of H.P. Lovecraft's favorite authors, I thought I would read probably my favorite Poe poem which is called Annabel Lee. It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee with the love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me, to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels not half so happy in heaven when envying her and me, yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above, nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee and the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. That's it for today. Our next discussion will be about the poetry of Seamus Heaney as we enter our brief poetry unit, so I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, try some of those Lovecraft prompts, and don't forget that you two have what it takes to be a great writer.